This week on Writers, Inc. Everything has changed in the publishing industry since that book was written. One of the, the worst changes was, and I knew this was going to seriously damage the industry when I started to hear it quite a number of years ago now. I started to hear from people in publishing that the mass market paperback is going to have to go away because the price point is too low. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, you're back in your office. How was, how was I, the travels down south? I am. I hope I, I sound a little bit better. Um, so we're, we're, we've got this renovation going on finally down there. We, we basically, we, we met so many people, or my wife did. I, I basically sat in the hotel room and, and just made up words, and she was out at this house as, as many as, as often as she possibly could be, but she lined up a bunch of contractors. She got all the vendors and stuff in place, um, and she she's showing me pictures now. There's there's like 10 or 15 people crawling over it. Like, all the floors are out. The walls are down. They're painting. They're doing this. They're doing that. It's it's like all these elves, you know, knocking it out. So it's very cool. Um, we're hoping to have it done in the next, like, four to six weeks. I think was the the overall time frame um, before we could actually start renting the place out, um, but it, it looks like it's on track for that. So I, I feel a lot better about it because like, it was a big dollar amount spend, and like that was literally like I, I didn't set foot in that place until you know two weeks after we bought it. Uh, so a little 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 scary, but I feel a lot better about it now. Good, good. Well, it's good to have you back in your in your regular digs. That's for sure. Yeah, I got to check up on something else that I've been working on in the, in the background. So, you know, we, we've talked about TikTok before and, you know, Snapchat, all these different services. I'm always trying to figure out some way to, you know, to, to sell books on, on these different things. Um, I, I stumbled into something through working with some friends of mine, and we basically created a company. Uh, to promote books on on TikTok through through BookTok, um, and, and the gist of it was was this. So I, I was out there. I was in the beta program for TikTok and their advertising program, and I've been putting money out there and spending anywhere from fifty to one hundred fifty dollars a day. You know, just creating ads, no different than you would on on Amazon and, and Facebook. Um, I didn't really see any results from that. And you know, as a TikTok user, you know, I'm constantly scrolling through trying to figure out what grabs people, and those ads just kind of fly by. You know, like you're scrolling through, and you know, you look at this, you look at that. There's an ad. You scroll right past it you move on to the next thing um so like to me like i wouldn't buy a book based on that like in facebook i think it works because they throw the book cover in front of you like it just for whatever reason it hooks you a little bit more but the way this is designed it just it, it didn't um you know as as a you know a, a user or a person like the idea of me going out there you know creating a post for one of my books uploading it to my own tiktok account like I honestly don't see how that's going to sell anything. Nobody's going to, to TikTok to, to see me dancing around holding a book Let's hope or, not. you know, yeah, I hope not or explain the virtues of a particular title. Like even if I came up with, you know, like, and I, I explored the idea of creating like a book trailer specific for TikTok and putting that out there, but same deal. You know, I think people are just going to scroll past it. So then I started digging into, you know, well, who is actually selling books on TikTok and it, it's not individual people. It's, it's book talk influencers. So it's basically the same crowd that was over at, you know, Facebook years ago and blog posters before before that, um, they went over to Instagram and now they've migrated over to TikTok. So these people have these ginormous followings on TikTok and they're reviewing books, you know, four or five books at a time or one book at a time or whatever. Um, so we basically decided to start targeting those. So we created a mailing list and we're, I think we're at 11 or 1200 or so you know, book talk influencers at this point. Um, the smallest one has a thousand followers. The largest one has a little shy of 600,000 followers. Um, so this company that I created, we're basically pairing all these people up. So a publisher can take a, an ARC that they've got coming out. They can use this company to distribute that ARC to these book talk influencers. So basically put it in their hands. So we're solving two problems there. You know, the publishers now have somebody they can send their books to for book talk. And the book talk people actually have someplace to get their books from. Because before, you know, they were just going, you know, online. They were hearing about it through their friends or walking into the bookstore and finding stuff on their own. So this is actually putting titles in their hands. Um, so we tested it out with one of my titles. We put Broken Thing out there just to see what would happen. We ended up with 23 copies 
a request for the ebook, um, but a little shy of 200 physical copies. And I, I think that's where the trend is going to be. I, I think, and that's, you know, roughly what, about 20% or so of the, the people that received that email asked for a copy of the book. So that's pretty strong. Um, I think they, they lean towards physical, you know, mainly because they, they use it in their post. You know, they want to be able to hold up that book. They want to show you the cover. They want to flip over the backside, stuff like that. Um, so from an expense standpoint, you know, it, it got, you know, slightly pricey if you think about it. I mean, I think it's like five bucks a pop to, to send out an, an ARC copy. But Except for that book, stance, it's like 15, right? Yeah, because it's, it's a like a thousand. It's like I was thousand pages. Say that. I, I, I think I think it's seven dollars for for the ARC. It's not too bad through through um, KDP. Um, so we'll we'll see where it goes. But you know, there's there's roughly about two hundred you know book talk influencers at this point that are reading and you know hopefully preparing to post some type of review on that book. And to me, you know, it's 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 all about you know something that's exponential. You know, if you've got even if you take the smallest person on that list, they've got a thousand followers. Like I'm not going to be able to make those kind of waves going out on TikTok on my own. So. We'll, we'll see what happens, but that, that's out there right now. The website's up if anybody wants to check it out. It's called bestofbooktalk.com, um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of fine-tuning as a, the process gets you know, f- further and further down the, the pipe. Nice. We'll have a link in the show notes, too. Um, are, are you starting with just fiction for now? Yeah, you know, I, I've reached out to a lot of the the publicists that I know at the traditional publishers, and that's you know that's what they're sending in. You know, it's the same copies that they're sending to everybody else because they're doing the same thing I was. You know, they're out Penguin Random House is out there spending an insane amount of money, you know, running ads, you know, the same as they do and everything else, and nobody knows you know what's working and what's not. Um, and you know, there, there's almost like there's a gatekeeper on these influencers, and this you know this allows them to to get past that door and you know get everybody talking to each other. So we'll, we'll see. seems like it, it could work. Nice. Nice. Before we get into some personal updates, I wanted to mention a uh, blog post that went up about a week ago as we're recording this uh, from your agent, Kristen Nelson. This is uh, their 2021 uh, Nelson Literary Agency end of year stats. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great read. Uh, I don't know if it's encouraging, discouraging. Uh, there's numbers. Uh, here's here's the here's the 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 summary that I thought was pretty powerful. They re- their aid her her agency received almost fourteen thousand queries, uh, thirteen thousand nine hundred and thirty two, and out of that uh, they took on number of new clients signed with uh, the agency, three. <laughs> <laughs> so I what I love about I love the transparency in this. Uh, I love the fact that that. Kristen and her team are willing to put these numbers up there and give people a very real look at what's happening because there's so much talk about traditional versus indie and what does it take and how do you how do you get it and like here are the numbers like here's the reality of the situation and I think it's a great tool to use as an author if you're trying to decide what path you want to pursue and just sort of knowing what the odds are, I think, is is a really a gift. It's it's a great article. There's a whole bunch of other numbers as far as number of manuscripts that they requested, uh, offers of representation, uh, major motion picture deals. There's a lot in here, but I thought that those couple statistics were really uh, illuminating. Yeah, you know, honestly, like I, I I think when I first signed with her, I didn't realize just how lucky I was. <laughs> you know, to get through that door. I mean, because I, I I didn't know really who she was. I mean, I, I knew she represented Josh Mallerman because I knew Josh, and that that was how I I got in touch with her. Um, but other than that, I just did a little you know quick research on Publishers Marketplace, and the things that jumped out at me were were basically her her stats. You know, first of all, she's not in New York, which is you know in the publishing world is, is a little strange. She's out in Colorado, um, but you know pretty much every author she's got on the roster is a New York Times bestseller. And when you dig back through the numbers, they started with her you know as their de- as a debut. You know, like she, she basically took them from nothing to a New York Times bestseller. And if you look at the deals that she was she was receiving at the time and, and still is, you know, there's six and seven figure deals um, in film and TV and those types of things. I mean, she just she jumped out and stood out, you know, from from everybody else in so many different ways. Um, and then I actually spoke to her on the phone and, and that was a, a done deal. I mean, she just she understands this industry on a level that most agents that I've spoken to just don't. Um, she, you know, not only where it's been, but where it's going. Like she spends just as much time thinking about what's going to be happening five years from now she does what's happening today um and 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 that's key as well um and the the other thing and i'm just going to throw this out there like i know Kristen well enough you know i've seen some of her responses on these queries and you know like she tries to respond to as many of them as she possibly can and when she does it's not just you know even if she turns you down it's not just a rejection letter she'll send you paragraphs of why she's not taking the novel she'll tell you what you know what she considers to be a red flag and gives you the opportunity as a as a writer
writer to go out there and fix it. Um, and, and most agents don't do that. You know, most agents just, you know, they toss it in their, their circular bin and they move on. They don't, they don't send you anything at all or you get a form letter or whatever. Um, but, you know, that really speaks to the, the agency itself because it's not just her. It's everybody that works there and that's the mentality there. Um, I, I would never consider going anywhere else. I, I, I love it there. And, and now next year she'll be able to thank you in her end of year stats for getting 20,000 <laughs> queries based <laughs> on what you just said. <laughs> yeah, her email address is. Uh, <laughs> I think it'll bounce out because I think that you might have also scared people away with those numbers. So maybe it'll maybe it'll balance out and be about the same. I'm, I'm curious, like, so everything you mentioned about her and, you know, uh, just the the success she's had with the client she's taken on. I mean, do you think that that just makes it, I guess what I'm asking is like, does that make her even more selective and harder to get in with than a lot of other agents? Like, do you think other agencies are probably bringing on more than three people, but she is only bringing on three just cause she's being so selective. Cause she's like hitting home runs so often. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a lot of agencies will just sign people just for the sake of signing them. I've, I've seen that happen, too. You know, they see a book that they think is pretty good and they don't want somebody else to get it. So they just sign them up um, and they may not necessarily know where that person's going to go. Um, so that's huge. Uh, I mean, w one of the things that really jumped out at me when, when I started working with her, you know, aside from just, you know, how, how she, you know, reviews the industry and understands where it's going is the model that she uses when she actually sells these things like with for, uh, for fourth monkey you know we had offers for worldwide worldwide rights um, that came in we had a, a bunch of different offers for that particular book and she turned all of those down instead she took an a la carte method so she sold fourth monkey english to somebody she sold spanish to somebody sold french to somebody sold audio to somebody else you know she broke it up into all of these little pieces and if you if you take a step back from that if you've ever worked in in business uh you know like there are people out there that do nothing but buy companies and then dismantle them and sell the pieces. Think about a car. You know, you, you, you take, you steal a car. Let's say you go out there and you steal a car. You could sell that car for, you know, X dollars, but if you piece it out, you're going to probably make four or five times as much money. And she's basically following that same model. And that same model holds true in so many different types of businesses. And like, it's little things like that, 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 you know, cause, cause all of this stuff to kind of come together. And, you know, it's the reason that I'm a full-time author. You know, I could have easily signed with, with somebody else that didn't do that, got a much smaller advance, and I might still be working a day job thinking about my next book. You know, and she, she made all that stuff happen so much faster. It's a lot more work for her. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just even, even the accounting side. God, I just got my, my 1099s and it's a nightmare, but, you know, it's, it's a happy nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say all those commas. That must be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mess with you. <laughs> Oh, well, actually, so I, 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 the, the point is, I, I wouldn't let it discourage you, though, if you're out there and you're querying. I mean, it, you know, all, all these agencies are receiving a lot of a lot of queries. It, you know, if, if you do it right, you're going to stand out. You know, the, the trick is to do it right. Make sure your query letter is a little bit different. Make sure it's going to you know, not get lost in that slush pile. Make sure the book is as perfect as it can possibly be. You know, don't send it in there with typos. Don't send it in there formatted the wrong way. Don't use an Arial font instead of Times New Roman, you know, just because you think it looks better. You know, there, there's reasons all these these things are in place and you, you, you don't want to be dismissed just because you, you know, decided to go a slightly different route to try to be different along those fronts. You know, yeah, play we, by the rules and you'll get there. When someone has to process 14,000 queries, it helps to have them all standardized. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense, right? I wouldn't want to be on the other side of that inbox yeah. for sure. <laughs> oh, well, you, you're, uh, you're all book talking. Uh, Zach, what, what you been working on this week? Same old, same old. I'm just uh, plugging away on the next uh, Dead South book. Got my got my cover ordered, which is always nice. So my uh, I, I got a little worried because our my cover artist, who I, I won't Jay, you know who she is, like is changing her business around. I don't oh. know if you've tried to talk to her or not, but she's got other people helping her and stuff now, and kind of made me a little nervous because I'm like, am I going to get a cover from her now or from somebody else or I don't know, but like. I, I think uh, she likes me enough where she's like, regardless of what's happening, she's probably going to work on my stuff. So, um, and she's done the other five books in the series anyway. So, but I got that done, which is always exciting and, uh, you know, just keeping pace and, uh, hoping for a like early April release on that. So we'll nice. see how that goes. Nice. I sent, uh, my writing scenes, nonfiction book is will be the next three story method book. I sent that off to the editor this week, so that, that felt pretty good. Uh, it's been almost two years since we published the original three-story method, which is almost hard to believe. Um, but that felt pretty good to kind of ship that. 
and have also been working with a branding agency and um, I'll have more about them. I definitely want to link to them. They're wonderful. The, uh, these two women are helping me. Uh, well, not helping me. They're doing it. They're, we're rebranding my nonfiction site. And uh, I mean, from the ground up. So it's been, it's been, we've been going uh, meeting since November. They're doing all, it's, it's both the branding and the website. So it's wireframing and building out the website and at the same time looking at all the branding aspects. So it's been an eye opener for me and a nice reminder that, uh, a reminder that I don't know how to make websites <laughs> or do graphic design and I'm way better hiring people to do that stuff for me. So anything else guys got going on? Anything interesting? Other than that, just just trucking away, working on the, the same same projects. All right. Well, in that case, then let's uh, take care of some business, and then we'll get to our guest. Uh, I want to give a nice shout out to the folks over there at Kobo Writing Life. They empower you to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. If you're going to publish a book wide, you definitely have to go to Kobo Writing Life. You're going to be able to set your prices worldwide. You, there's all kind of promotional opportunities without any exclusivity. So you can visit KoboWritingLife.com for more details. And also a warm shout out to all of our patrons over at Patreon.com slash Writers Inc. Podcast. If you would like to submit questions to our monthly Q&A episode, become a patron for as little as a buck a month, and, uh, and you can do that. So JD, <laughs> this is almost uh, silly to say this, but um, are you going to introduce our guest for this week? <laughs> yeah, this, this, this is a big one. <laughs> We've got Dean Koontz on uh, this week. Um, I, I've been chasing this guy forever, trying to, to get him to, to come on the air. And, you know, I, I, I first met him years back when I was trying to get a blurb for Fourth Monkey. Um, you know, sent him a physical copy of the book. You know, I ended up getting an email back from him. We just sort of struck up this email friendship where we kind of, you know, go back and forth every once in a while. And he, he's been a huge sounding board for me, you know, as, as I, especially when I was first starting out with, you know, little tidbits of advice here or there, you know, kind of helped me steer in the right direction. Um, and I just, you know, the last book that he's actually written on the craft of writing I think was what like 1968 <laughs> you know so it's been a little while so I really wanted to get him on the air to, to talk about this a little bit and he he finally caved and agreed um so here he is I don't want to hold back anymore Dean Koontz all right uh the first question I have to ask you because I've done this is uh what's the best thing about teaching English in the state of Pennsylvania <laughs> that I'm not doing it anymore <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard job isn't it <laughs> It was a hard job. Uh, why I got out of it was, uh, it seemed to me that all the resources were going to the administrators and very little of it to the teachers. And uh, it just got very frustrating. So I was selling uh, my fiction, but not making a living at it. Uh, and that's when my wife said, look, I know you don't want to be teaching school anymore. You want to write, now support you for five years. You can't make it in five, you'll never make it. And uh, and it took almost the full five, but eventually I made it. And always hanging over my head was, uh oh, I'm gonna have to go back and beg for my job at the high school back. But thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> Do you remember? Was there a point within those first five years where you thought, okay, I can do this. I, I can definitely do this. I knew I could do do it. I didn't know if I could do it at the level that would. Uh, satisfy me in the long term or that would pay off in a large way. Uh, in fact, even after those five years, it took a long time. Um, let me see, that five years started in, I guess that was about 69. And my first uh, book that had any bestseller list was uh, uh, 69, was 80, 84, I think. Uh, so we're looking at 15 years there that uh, it was touch and go. You would have some success and then things would turn sour and then things would get a little better. It was up and down and uh, it, I wasn't sure it would last. Uh, and as you get add those 15 years and you start getting, suddenly you're not 21 anymore, you're in your mid thirties, it's a little difficult to pick up another career if this doesn't work. So the motivation was very high make it work and finally it did start but it took that's why i say to young writers you know everybody wants their first book to be a great success happens to almost nobody uh and it's it's very hard to build that but it's worth the determined effort if it works out 
Certainly, and you've uh, you've spent decades being one of the most uh, proficient and and successful writers in the craft. I I think we're all amazed at your ability to produce on such a regular basis. Uh, what's your secret? The secret is I'm obsessed. Uh, I probably belong in an institution, but nobody has thought to put me away yet. Uh, yet I get up at five thirty in the morning. By six thirty or seven, I'm working. I rarely rarely lunch uh, because it makes me foggy brain um, and uh, then I, I work until dinner and I do that six days a week if it's toward the end of the book I do it seven days a week uh, you start putting in those hours over the number of years I've been writing it's amazing how much product you begin to turn out if you want to think of it as product uh, because uh, I often say you know three pages a day six or seven days a week, you've got a novel in three to four months. Uh, and that's not terribly fast production when you think of it that way. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's worked out. And that's good because there is nothing else on earth I'm capable of doing. <laughs> uh, is, is your process... Um... Has it has it always been, or is it still where you write your scene or your chapter, and you make sure it's it's you're satisfied with it before you move on to the next one? It's almost page by page. I have to write the page to the best of my extent. That might be ten times twenty, thirty depends on book the page. Um, and once that page is right, I move on to the next. Uh, Self doubt comes right back, and I have to start polishing, polishing, polishing. The beauty of that is you have plenty of time to think. And I'm not, I don't work on an outline, I work organically. So in the back of your head, you often know there's a problem coming. You don't know whether it's 70 pages, 80, 100, but you know what it is because you've set this up and you don't know how you're gonna get this character from here to here or past this problem. And if you work this way, working those pages over and over and over, and then at the end of every chapter, I go back and pencil it a couple of times because you see in print, there's my dog in the background. You see in print uh, what you don't see on the screen. And, but by the time you get to the end of the book, it's actually had many drafts. And those problems you saw coming and thought, how am I ever going to resolve that? Resolve themselves subconsciously. You get to the problem and you realize, oh, I have two or three ways to get past this this issue. Uh, so it's worked for me. I don't know that it works for every writer, but I found that I can't write any other way. I'll bet your editors have loved you over the years for that. Well, uh, you, I've had some very good editors. I've had some not so good editors. I've got a good one now, a good publisher now. Uh, yet uh, my issue with people has been seldom about the pros. I've had copy editors tell me I'm trying to put them out of business, which isn't my point. But uh, but it's I like to deliver prose that's as close to my idea of what perfect is as I can, because that also fit, that avoids those month-long editorial back and forths while everybody tries to resolve problems. If there are no serious problems, it gets into the system quicker. Uh, then also uh, uh, where you run into, where I have run into problems sometimes with publishers and editors uh, has been, uh, and generally more with publishers, has been when I first started crossing genres and nobody else was doing it uh, and they couldn't grasp that. And then again, when I started uh, introducing humor into suspense or fiction, terrorizing fiction, they said that, uh, Nobody's going to be afraid reading reading this because they keep laughing. And my answer to that was, they're laughing with the character. And if the character has a sense of humor, it's more appealing, more interesting, and more realistic. And the scary stuff can be even scarier. So those were the kind of arguments that I got involved with. Sometimes I remember when I delivered Lightning, uh, the publisher fought me tooth and nail for six months saying, if I publish this, it will destroy your building career. And after it was finally published, the very next book was the first that went to number one. So I think the book didn't destroy my career. I think it built it. But uh, it's a fine line when you're a young writer 
to knowing where the input from publisher editor is right and where it might not be correct. Uh, and that was one of the hardest things to get and understand as my career developed. I definitely want to come back to genre, but first, I'd love to talk about the the new book, Quicksilver, from Thomas and Mercer, and and your new publisher, Amazon. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book, and uh, and, uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the this wonderful trio of characters you've created. Well, it's uh, it started out as just a little image in my head. Where these come from, I don't know, but I saw this uh, desert highway, very lonely. Uh, and sitting in the middle of the three-lane highway was this bassinet of thatched plastic and a baby was in it. And I thought, huh, some power the universe is telling me here's a story. <laughs> so start to think about that. What does that mean? And uh, then character drives fiction, I think. And then I heard the voice of Quinn Quicksilver. I didn't quite have his name then. But... I knew he was going to start out the book saying, I was found on a lonely highway when I was three days old, abandoned by my parents. Uh, and that gets you right into the character. You find him intriguing, vulnerable, uh, uh, relatable. And I knew that he was going to just spend a paragraph or two talking about that and then say that he had come forward. He was 19 now, just graduated from the orphanage when he was 18 and nobody wanted to uh, adopt him. And within about three minutes, I thought where this story is going, that yeah, nobody wanted him when he was born. Nobody wanted him for 18 years when he was in the orphanage, but suddenly every law enforcement officer in the United States will want him and he's on the run and he meets these other people who are in likewise situation. Now, why? What is it? What is it about him that suddenly he's wanted? I'm not going to tell you because that would be a big spoiler. Because uh, it's kind of fun what it turns out to be. Um, and I've been asked whether this is a series or not, but no, it's not. I think it works as a standalone. Uh, but I had great fun with it. I I won't spoil anything either. But I love the screamers. Uh, I, I love all these different elements that you brought in in together. There's thriller. There's some fantasy. There's some science fiction. Uh, was that an intentional, or did you sort of just let that story take it where, where it was going to go? You know, I've I've read in every genre since I was very young, uh, and I like things in every genre. And as a consequence, when I sit down to write. I never think about genre. I just think about what's going to work. When I started doing this way, way back in the late 70s, uh, there was terrible resistance to it. You know, they like to put a label on you. And that I understand because it's marketing. Uh, but on the other hand, labels limit you. Uh, they limit you artistically if you think about them. And I've always thought to kind of limit you marketing-wise as well. Uh, so I've largely resisted labels. And uh, and certainly, uh, if I can't control the marketing and the label and put an eye on that, I can control what the fiction is and not let it be something easily labeled. Um, and I have to entertain myself. So when I sit down with the keyboard, it generally means I'm going to start mixing and mashing things because that's where you get the most entertainment as a writer. I know that early on you were un unfairly labeled as just a horror writer and that that created some obstacles for you. So um, were, was there anything specific that you did to to try and remove that label or, or, or maybe just broaden the approach? Well, when I was in my 20s, I wrote a large number of science fiction novels. They were all about the 60,000 word length, which was popular then. Now publishers 100,000 words or more. Uh, and... I had took oh, a decade after I stopped writing science fiction to get rid of the science fiction label. For a decade, I'd have a new book out and somebody would say, oh, here's something different from the sci-fi writer. And I would think, I haven't been doing that for a decade. I finally had, well, maybe not, I did even before that. I bought back or otherwise recaptured the rights to all the science fiction I did and kept it out of print. That was one way. And but I once I moved into suspense and and started mixing up genres and creating something that seemed to me mainstream. 
uh, I had a lot of work and it wasn't always easy to buy it back. Uh, so I started when that word horror showed up. I have nothing against horror, it's one of the genres I love, but I just don't want to be labeled. And uh, so I forced Putnam to stop putting it on the books. I said, no. And then I started angling to get control of the cover art. And you could do that to an extent. And then you'd get a piece of cover art that you thought, okay, that isn't going into the blood and guts look that they wanted to put on them. Uh, and then when they, you'd see the final cover, they had come in and they darkened it up and they play with it in different ways that made it spookier than the one you had approved. So that was one reason ultimately I had to change publishers. Uh, it's just something you struggle with. I don't know if there's any key to get past it, except to write stuff that everybody begins to understand, reaches out to different audiences than just that one audience. I would imagine that uh, your new publisher is is giving you more creative input uh, than maybe some other traditional publishers have. Can you talk to that a bit? Uh, I, I don't look to publishers for the creative input so much in marketing or whatever. When I when I decided that things were just not working or at random house, uh, my agents, I had done these nameless stories for Amazon original stories that had been, uh, it had been very nice relationship. And my agents said, we want to put Amazon's Thomas and Mercer in the mix of people we're going to for a new contract. And I first thought, no, I don't know, that doesn't quite work for me, but okay, I like working with these people on Amazon. It's a different set. Amazon Original Stories and Thomas and Mercer are different folks. Um, but we got eight offers uh, back from traditional publishers and Amazon. And you know, the money was just pretty much the same uh, in the top ones uh, across, but the difference was Amazon's created marketing was dramatically good. Uh, of all the mainstream New York publishers, the biggest marketing proposal I got was two pages. Uh, what I got from Thomas and Mercer was 30 or 40 pages. And when you looked at that, they said, okay, this is more what I've been looking for. Uh, and <clears throat> where they're created is in their marketing, uh, in, their, uh, in their packaging. They make beautiful books at Thomas and Mercer. I was disturbed uh, that Random House quality product was deteriorating. Spines were cracking when you opened the new book. Uh, the boards were plain. Uh, the end papers were plain. Thomas Mercer makes very wonderfully bound books. They're not going to split on you. And they decorate the spines. They decorate the end papers. They, they do title illustration, part title illustrations. I was stunned when I first saw the first thing they say. This is what, as a collector, I love. You just don't see it out of most mainstream publishing anymore. You're right. I mean, the the details of uh, in the on the marketing side. I mean, I'm looking at the Quicksilver page on Amazon, and everything is is formatted beautifully. All of your formats are all presented and ready to go. Uh, it, it seems like they're really paying attention to a lot of the details. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and when you get uh, some feedback, it it heartens you to believe this is serious feedback because they're being so serious about all the other stuff they're doing. And so it makes it easier to just relax and deal with everything that comes up. So yeah, it's been, I'm surprised, uh, but it has been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, I know that you published a book in 1981 called How to Write Best-Selling Fiction. I was wondering if you have any plans for an updated uh, or revised edition or a new book. I would have to revise it because most of what I said was probably totally ridiculous. <laughs> uh, plus, everything has changed in, in the publishing industry since that book was written. Uh, one of the, the worst changes was, and I knew this was going to seriously damage the industry, when I started to hear it quite a number of years ago now, I started to hear from people in publishing that the mass market paperback is going to have to go away because the price point is too low. And there was all this talk that they could take that mass audience that was paying eight and nine dollars, eight and ten dollars eventually for a mass market 
and make them pay $16.95. And I knew that was never going to happen. What you were going to have was the death of the mass market paperback, which was where so many writers of my generation and some thereafter built careers. Uh, I mean, when, when we got to the point where we were selling a million or more paperbacks in the first couple of months, some of those people moved on then after a few books to buying new hardcover. And that's how you made the leap. Uh, and you grew the hardcover sales out of the growing paperback sales. And those are gone. Uh, it's you, you now have uh, ebooks, but, and they're wonderful. Uh, and the profit area in there is high. Uh, but when you had 500 paperback distributors in the United States, and you walked into any drugstore, grocery store, or everywhere you went, there were these little posters. That's what I always thought of the cover of a paperback being. And the, the impulse purchases were great. Uh, and now that's not there. The, the little representation on the screen, you have to go seeking it usually. Uh, it just doesn't happen to you as you're out about shopping. Uh, and I think that's been a disaster for the industry and makes it harder for young writers to get that toehold and build into something bigger and better. I know a lot of young writers look look to uh, look to you um, at, for for guidance and advice and as a mentor. When you have the opportunity to talk to them, what are some of the things that you mention that you think are relevant to becoming a writer in 2022? Well, it never was easy to build a career in this. <clears throat> but it's harder now than ever because of uh, the death of the mass market and just a whole host of things. Um, publishers, it's anathema to say this, but a lot of publishers that in the mainstream of publishing in New York, a lot of what they publish anymore are, uh, are driven by celebrity reading clubs, uh, GMA's reading club, all of these TV sponsored reading clubs. And I've seen over the years that mostly what has happened is that those titles that are in those reading clubs that get all the big push, there's a certain blandness to them. They, 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 there's nothing exciting about most of them. And many of them feel like the same book retread. Uh, and I've, I've often thought somebody like the late great Donald Westlake or or John D. McDonald, or, or the mystery novelist Larry Block, or anybody who's done exceptional work over the years in various genres are unlikely ever to be picked by these book clubs because they're too edgy, even if they're not considered edgy within the genre. And, and I think that's sad. It doesn't, it doesn't elevate American fiction at all. Um, so advice to young writers, uh, don't Look, don't scope the market. That's the thing I've seen most over the years. Uh, so many young writers look around, what's selling? And when zombie novels were the number one thing, there were a hundred a week published at one point. Uh, uh, everybody was writing zombie novels. Uh, you, you can't, it's very unlikely you're gonna break through that way. What you have to write is what you're passionate about. Now, if you're passionate about zombie novels, you think there's, nothing ever better been written in the world than the best zombie novels and that you can do with them better, then by all means do it. But you really need to focus on what you think you most love as a writer and as a reader and focus on that whether right now it's popular or not. The best thing is for you to make it popular by being the one who brings it back or creates something a little bit new. And scoping the market and writing for what you think it wants is death for various reasons, partly because three years from now, it won't want that anyway. Uh, and that, that's the biggest piece of advice. Most of my rest, rest of the advice has to do with craft things and uh, learning how to avoid some of the pitfalls of bad craft. But uh, we could take hours with that. <laughs> I know that uh, I've I've read that that your life experience has really influenced a lot of your stories. Um, can can you uh, talk about how uh, someone can combine their passion and maybe their life experience to create something unique like you're talking about? Uh, yeah, you kind of I you know I did it without knowing I was doing it. Uh, I had a, for many years I never talked about my childhood. Actually, I was on the bestseller list for everybody. 
Um, and uh, we were dirt poor, never know if we were gonna have a roof over our heads. But worse, my dad was a violent alcoholic who had 44 jobs in 34 years. And was always talking about suicide, but when he talked about, and he had two brothers who actually committed suicide. And whenever he would talk about suicide, he would include us. It would be better if we all died together than if we go on struggling like this. I never knew if he would actually act on that or not. Late in life, he ended up in psych wards, was diagnosed as uh, ultimately as a sociopathic personality. And yes, he had the capacity to do that. Uh, I wrote, and I have written a lot about people who are without family, who are alone, uh, who are in some desperate situation. And as the story evolves and they pull together with other people to get through what they're going through, they essentially build a new family. And I didn't know I was doing that until an editor pointed it out to me, how often I had done that sort of thing in fiction. And right away I realized <coughs> I'm writing about what I wish I'd had. Uh, and uh, so you do it, I think, anyway. I'm not so sure it's the best idea to sit down and say, okay, now how am I gonna use what I've suffered through and put it in my fiction? Because I'm afraid that ends up being a wine and nobody wants to read a wine. So uh, I think it's better just to let the experience percolate in your subconscious and it'll work its way into the fiction. It certainly did in Quicksilver, where I think Quinn chose his new family of Bridget and Sparky, and, and I think that yeah. was very thematic of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, and they uh, and they ran into other people that you know if they had to go back to would eventually evolve into sort of a family relationship. So, yeah, still doing it. Still works. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know we could uh, spend hours talking about craft. So instead of that, I will just ask you for maybe one of your favorite craft tips that, that you share frequently. Uh, well, I'll give you a couple of different things that Great. I say to young writers. One, uh, with Ernest Hemingway, uh, minimalist fiction really took over. And uh, all figures of speech, uh, metaphors, similes, uh, and everything else was largely stripped out of Hemingway's fiction. Now, I happen to like Hemingway's fiction, at least the first 20 years of it. Right? So, uh, and, uh, but there's a big difference. He was a genius and he really did leave in, in subtle ways, what he didn't write in. Uh, the white space in those novels resonates. It's, it's an amazing feat what he achieved. You read that little story called The Killers, and it's chilling to the bone. And I've read many similar stories that aren't, that are much more elaborate than that and everything that don't have that impact. Uh, and so a lot of writers got swept up into that, and it still happens in our own time. And they had this toolbox of this beautiful language we have, English with all of its potential. Uh, and they just, they throw away a lot of those tools. They throw away simile metaphor. Uh, they do very little colorful description. And I think, you know, the, one of the most common things that readers say to me is, when I read your books, I see them and I know what they mean because you're painting a scene just as if uh, with every tool in that toolbox. And I say to the writers, don't throw it away unless, you're, a, you're sure you're a genius, the equal of Hemingway. And just because you're sure of it doesn't mean it's true. So <laughs> why don't you think about going out there and using all the tools you know, that you have to make this right? And sadly, a, a lot have been educated, so they don't really even understand metaphor and symbol anymore. And they're gonna have to learn how to use it properly and so forth. But it's with all of that, uh, there's a writer I like when he's really at his best. Um, now look at this, the name's going to escape me, uh, but I'll go back to it. Uh, the, uh, who, who says that you aren't actually writing until you're incorporating everything you can observe about the human world uh, from architecture and art and everything else in the natural world. And you have to bring all of that into a story, just as Dickens did. Uh, 
perfect example of, of how that's done. And and then you're really writing because then you're you're creating a world of your time, no matter what genre it's in, except sci-fi, it might be in a separate time than your time. Uh, and so that's one piece of advice I give. Another is uh, I see examples of this where a lot of young writers have not been taught that if you're not doing a novel in first person, if you're doing it from multiple points of view, you have to stay in the same point of view in the scene. Now, there's some writers who don't do this and succeed at it, but most don't <coughs> don't succeed at it. And, and those who do it don't necessarily succeed for very long. It depends on the power of the story to get the reader past that. Because when you're in a scene that's from the point of view of Queen Quicksilver, then you can't go into another character's head to know what he's thinking. And you can't see Quicksilver through that character. Everything has to be conveyed through Quinn. And if the point of view is somebody else, everything has to be conveyed through that point of view until you're in another scene. That's what begins to feel realistic about it, uh, because that's what life is like. We don't hop into other people's heads very conveniently to find out what they're thinking. Uh, so it feels to a reader very unnatural. So that's the thing I think some young writers got to get past and understand the real, uh, elevate their fiction to a level that will lead towards success. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great advice. Uh, one last question for you uh, today. Really appreciate you spending the time with us. Are you optimistic about the future of, of publishing? Yes. Uh, you have to know that I went full-time in 1969. Uh, and uh, ever since I went full-time, I have heard about the death of publishing, about the death of fiction, that TV was going to destroy it. And, and, and now, of course, streaming is going to destroy it. And this is going to destroy it. And that is going to destroy it. Uh, the only thing that will destroy publishing is publishers. <laughs> If they refuse to listen to the public, if they want to pump out what they want to pump out, uh, and and do not bother to learn about what the rest of the country is like and what their tastes are, and try to reach out to them, then publishing could kill itself. Uh, but it's a hardy beast, so I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I just signed a new five book contract and. Uh, delivered the first book. And I wouldn't have done that if I thought it was all going down into a black hole at any moment. So now it'll be there in one form or another for as long as I'm around, I think a long time after. I'm still kind of pinching myself, guys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, a legend, a living legend. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Zach, you want to kick us off? I mean, what, what are some thoughts you had here? Well, first off, kudos to you because it was a great interview. Thank you. So you, you, you did an awesome job. Um, yeah, there was so much in there. I mean, it was just it, it was amazing. Um, I, I guess just kind of going chronologically, uh, thinking about some of the things he said, you know, one thing that stuck out was um, especially, you know, having done my doing my other podcast creator dad, you know, talking to parents and oftentimes people who are who are married and, and just from talking to people a lot like. I thought his whole story of when he, how he got started and how his wife was just like, I can support you for five years. Like go give this your best shot. And, um, I think all three of us would agree. Um, even though I think Jay's wife doesn't know what he does half the time. I think all of us would agree <laughs> that like having another per, if you are in that, in a relationship, like having a support system is, is crucial. Like all of us have, um, all three of us have really good support systems on the other side of us. And, um, I don't know. I thought that was, that was just really, really cool. How, th how that, how that all worked out for him. That was, that was the first real big thing that stuck out with me. 
you know, like, yeah, my first wife didn't get it, which is why she's my first wife. <laughs> you know, like she, we used to get in fights, you know, like I would go into my office for three, four hours at a time to, to write because it helped me clear my head. And, you know, she just didn't understand why I was just, you know, wasting time in, in her mind. Um, you know, and then we talked about this, my, my, the woman I'm married to now, I mean, she came up with this crazy plan to basically destroy our lives, sell everything that we absolutely own, you know, walk away from the day job, live off of savings and try and make it happen. Um, she put my feet to the fire. And, and honestly, like, you know, most of the bigger name authors that I've talked to, they've all had that kind of, you know, come to Jesus sort of moment, you know, where, you know, even King, like was working in a library in a laundry, you know, like every, these guys tend to work crappy jobs, you know, partly because it helps force you to, to keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, I just, I can't imagine the pressure of that. Like in Dean's case, you know, he started full time in 1969. He didn't have that first bestseller until 1984. You know, that that's 15 years of, of, you know, and he was selling books, you know, don't get me wrong, just not, you know, bestseller numbers. Um, one of the things he didn't mention there, which he has told me in the past, is that first bestseller was his first book that he actually wrote without an outline. Um, all the ones prior to that he had he had rigorously outlined, and that was the very first one where he, he didn't do that. And I, I think it was Strangers. I'd have to go back and look, but I believe that was the title. Um, so, yeah, you know, we've heard these stories before, you know, and there, there's a reason, you know, that the history keeps repeating itself. It, it just, to a certain extent, it works. Um, you know, and his work ethic too is, is the other thing that always jumps out at me. I mean, he's, he's up, you know, he said five 30 in the morning working by six 30, he skips lunch, you know, works all day long, you know, doesn't come out until after, after dinner, you know, the guy's in his mid seventies and he is not slowing down. You know, if anything, it's, he's, he's just, he's working even harder. Yeah. I, I think it's easy to get cynical with, uh, with some of the guests we've had, well, for a lot of the guests we've had on people, oh, well that's Dean Koontz or that's James Patterson or, you know, fill in the blank. That's that's not me. And if you really pay attention to what these writers are saying, like they're all coming from the same place. Like Patterson and Koontz and, and all of these people, they didn't start as, as publishing royalty. They weren't sitting on a pile of cash deciding what to write. Like they're scrapping it out. I mean, Dean Koontz, 15 years it, it took him 15 years and, 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 and writing in that way. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating that hustle culture that like you need to be writing, you know, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. But the point is like these writers, they work their tails off and they, they earned the position that they're in. And so I think it's a bit unfair to take that cynical look. And that's why I'm always really interested in these origin stories and hearing about where these, where these folks started and how they started, because it's no different than anybody else. Yeah, you know, honestly, like I just uh, finished reading um, Patterson's autobiography. It's it's coming out, um, I think, sometime this year. Um, I, I was really surprised in reading that how long he actually worked in advertising. You know, because I remember the books coming out. I, I don't. Nobody remembers his first one, the Thomas Berriman number. I, I don't even think he has a copy of that one anymore. Uh, but along came a spider. You know, hit pretty big, at least in my mind as a, a reader. You know, some a book enthusiast. Uh, but he was still working in advertising for you know, years after that. You know, numerous books came out while he was still working in advertising before he finally pulled that trigger and, and went full time. Um, you know, and you just, you don't see that, you know, people see those books on the shelves over at Walmart and they just assume, well, that guy is, you know, making a gazillion dollars. He's, you know, doing that full time and, and that's that, but that, that's not the case. Um, something else that, that Dean brought up and he kind of glossed over it, but is his, his, his prose. Like when he turns in a book, you know, like he, he comes through that text over and over again before it ever leaves his computer. Uh, I've been lucky enough to receive ARCs from him and, and numerous other people. And I, I probably read, if I had to guess, maybe 10 of, of Dean's ARCs at this point, and I have yet to spot a single typo. You know, <laughs> some, something, something as minor as a comma in the wrong place. Um, and in talking to his editor and, and the people that work with them, like that's, you know, straight off his typewriter, that's the way it shows up on their desk, um, you know, and and I, I've got plenty of friends that are New York Times bestsellers that cannot make that claim. I could go through their their ARCs with a highlighter and you know probably for, find four or five mistakes on one page, um, you know. And but the fact that he does that, he takes that kind of time. I mean, that's I think one of the reasons why he's you know still doing as well as he does today. You know, he he puts out the, in his mind the perfect product. You know, like he doesn't let it leave his house. Nobody sees it until it's as good as it can possibly be, and then he shares it with everybody else. Um, you can't you can't do that. You can't send out a, a four you know four star book. You need to get it to that five star number before it goes if you really want to hit big yeah it was uh <clears throat> it was interesting you know we we've heard about his process forever and stuff and it's kind of a you know like a, a thing a lot of people talk about in the in our circles and stuff and we've even mentioned it a couple times in the last few weeks on the show but like hearing him really talk about it was just made it even more fascinating <laughs> for me just uh and it just it just makes so much sense 
you know, and the fact, uh, you know, Jay even kind of, you know, made fun, like, you know, are you putting your editors out of business, <laughs> you know, type, type of thing. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you, at the end of the day, you still have to do that work and you still have to be good at finding all that stuff. And, um, yeah, kudos to him. Cause it's just, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah, one of the things that he, he also mentioned is that he, you know, he, I, I know he edits on paper. You know, he physically prints out each page and he, he looks at it. I, I, I think everybody should try that um, at, at least once. You know, print out your story and because I think you're going to find that you, you notice very different errors when you're looking at that page on paper than you do if it's on your, your physical screen in front of you. Um, and again, you have to go back to the roots of this. You know, you're, you're writing because you love to read. You love to read and your, your brain understands what those words, what those pages, what that white space, what all of that is supposed to look like. So I think printing it out on paper is is very important i loved uh the his ideas about genre because i feel like he has never wavered on that and it it was it was really enlightening for me to hear him talk about how very early on he was you know the the publishers and editors were trying to box him in and he kind of resisted it and uh and now where i'm in my writing career like i really admire that and i'm trying to incorporate some of those ideas into my approach and I know, J.D., you've followed that, too. Even with your tagline, you, you've sort of resisted uh, typical genre labels. So um, is that something he helped you with early on, too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because I wrote Forsaken, you know, fully expecting to be a horror author. You know, like that's kind of where I was going. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like I just wanted to write stories that I basically didn't find on the bookshelves. That, you know, that might have been my primary motivator. Just So my second book was Fourth Monkey, which is a serial killer thriller. Very different. Um, and, you know, the, the reception of that was was so different. You know, Kristen got me a seven-figure deal on that where Forsaken I ended up self-publishing and it worked out. Um, but I didn't get a seven-figure deal for that book. So now I've got a horror book. Then I've got a thriller and I've got everybody asking me what's coming next. Um, you know, and I, I ran this by him and he, he basically told me this, a similar story to what he, he told you on the, you know, in the interview. Um, you know, he told me what happened to him, how, you know, he got lit, his first big book was considered horror. So he got lit, hit with that tag. Um, but, you know, looking at it, if you look at this objectively, you walk into a bookstore, look at the biggest names that are, are in there. And they're not necessarily genre writers, you know, like, you know, and we talk about Stephen King all the time, too. I mean, look, look at him. Like he's got, you know, he starts off in horror. You know, he's written a ton of thrillers, you know, the, the Mr. Mercedes series. Those those are straight up thrillers. They're not they're not necessarily horror. Um, his, I, I just got an email about his next um, book coming out and it's a fantasy novel you know so he's he's all over the place too and you know one of the things that i talked to dean about is it's it's you know if you play your cards right if you bounce back and forth between these genres early on and there's some type of common thread that's what's key you have to have something that's going to tie all these different things together so in my case it's, it's suspense um as long as you have that, the readers will follow. They'll go from one to the next to the next because that common thread is your your predominant element of, of those books. You know, so my books are suspense novels with a little bit of horror, a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But ultimately, they're suspense novels. Now, from a publisher standpoint, that scares the piss out of them. They, they, they don't want any part of that. They want to be able to label you as, you know, somebody who writes paranormal romance or whatever it might be so they know what box to put your books in and how to sell you to everybody else. Um, but I, I see it more like being a, a literary pie piper you know like if i pick up you know x number of readers writing a horror novel and then i write a thriller novel and pick up another totally set different group of people and they combine you know then i write a different type of novel you know that i grab another group of people from and all of them are following me along for this ride i think that's how you actually get to the stephen king dean Koontz, you know james patterson type audiences not writing one specific genre but you know throwing the, the biggest net net that you can possibly cast yeah, I think like along that conversation, I mean, there was one part of the conversation where, uh, you know, because cause the way I've looked at that for a long time, and Jay's asked me multiple times, even on podcast stuff, like if I feel like I'm stuck as a zombie writer. And it was ironically, I felt like Dean was kind of talking to me directly at one point when he's like, if you like zombie stuff, just write it. Yeah, I was thinking but, like, of you really, too when he said that. <laughs> I, I know, like, but really write what you want. And I'm kind of at that place right now because, like, I do enjoy writing that, but I also kind of feel hamstrung. And, but like, I'm going to, I've only got a couple books left to write in the series I'm working on. Like I'm planning on being done with it this year and I have to decide what I'm going to do next. And it's been a hard decision for me, like, cause I have different routes I can go. And the way I've always kind of looked at it was I'm, uh, I'm buying myself time, like by writing this stuff that can kind of support me, um, my backlist where then I can like take a little bit more of a risk, but then it's also like, 
well, when do you know what that time is? Like, when do you know when the time is to take the jump? And uh, I don't know, like hearing him talk about that made me be like, man, I should, because there's this one direction I really want to go, but it's more risky. But it's almost making me be like, I mean, I should just like jump into it and go for it, you know? Well, I, I had a very similar conversation with Patterson, and he kind of told me, you know, the, the flip side of what Dean told me because, you know, he had a long came a spider. He had kissed the girls. He had this one. He had that one. But he had, he had five serial killer novels, you know, very similar formula in a row. Um, and then he decided to write a book about a girl with wings. And if and that was called uh, When the Wind Blows. And if you go back and look at those reviews, like they, they shredded them because his fans expected that serial killer novel. So if you think of this as climbing a hill, you know, like every time you write a book in the same genre, you know, you're getting further and further up that hill. And it's, it's that much higher that you have to climb with the next one to, to get around it. Um, you know, that being said, though, I, I don't think there's any reason why any author should really you know, put themselves in a box if they don't want to be. Because if, if you're, you know, if you get stuck writing the same book over and over again, it's going to come out dry. You know, your readers are going to pick up on it. Uh, you know, if, if there's something that's gnawing at you to write, you know, you need to just write it because, you know, th that passion will be in the book and the readers are going to pick up on it, too. And sure, you may lose some readers. You miss, may piss off some other ones. But, you know, you may pick up another whole group, you know, that's going to supplement those, you know. So in, in the end, you have to do what's going to keep you going. And, you know, if that means jumping genres and trying something different, you know, by all means, you should do it. Yeah. Also, I loved... Uh... Um, just kind of what he talked about with his publishing deal and everything. I thought there was a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And, um, you know, obviously uh, jumping over to an Amazon imprint and I don't know, like what he talked about and JD, I mean, maybe you'd have some insight on this. You're probably the most qualified here, but like talking about receiving all those deals and seeing those marketing plans and getting the big thick one from Thomas and Mercer was like, that was pretty interesting to me. Yeah, you know, if you walk into a Barnes and Noble right now, you know, take a look around, you know, at the various tables and see if you can spot a book from Thomas and Mercer, you know, sitting there. And, and chances are you're not going to. Um, I was thinking know, about that when he was talking about it. Yeah. yeah so he was you're going to see his books there. But, you know, he's, he's as far as I know, the first you know, to come off of an Amazon imprint and actually end up in the, the traditional bookstores. And obviously, you know, he came through that door, you know, with a, a, a pretty big, you know, uh, group of people behind him, a you know, large buying audience. Um, but, you know, that, that was very much an uphill battle. And I know when he first signed this deal, one of the things he was concerned with is, you know, he may or may not hit the bestseller list anymore. You know, because, you know, all of a sudden all of his books or a large portion of his books are being sold through Amazon. And anybody that knows, you know, how the New York Times, you know, system works, you know, you need to have a mix. You need to have traditional bookstores. You need to have ebooks. You have to have this. You have to have that. But it, it can't all be from one source. So they tend to discount it. Um, you know, so he was he was very worried about that. Um, I, I grabbed some things off my shelf and I, I wish we had video where people could see them. But, I, you know, we can at least talk about it a little bit. So this is a. Uh, an ARC for one of Dean's books. And this is how it arrived at my house from Thomas and Mercer. You know, it's a full color, you know, printed ARC in a slip case, you know, with raised lettering on the cover, you know, like extremely gorgeous presentation. It looks like a collector's item. You that know, does not look like an ARC. <laughs> no, that, that's an ARC. So now here's another one <laughs> that, that came in from a, a totally different publisher um, for somebody, you know, selling pretty well, um, you know, plain blue paper cover, you know, just printed. It almost looks like it came off a, a copy machine. And, and that's coming from, you know, in this case, Simon and Schuster, one of the largest publishers out there. Um, and, you know, the contrast between those two, I think basically sums up everything that's, that's going on, you know, like the, you know, Penguin Random House. Yeah, they're, they're great, but you know, they've, they've got a formula in place and it works to a certain extent. They're going to market all their books that same way. They're going to follow it um, the, the same way they've been doing it for years and years. Whereas you've got somebody like Amazon, Thomas and Mercer and these various imprints, you know, they, they came out of nowhere. You know, they, they started selling products on the web and uh, turned that into some books and then, you know, a few other things. And all of a sudden they're one of the largest companies in the world. And, you know, they're like, they're, they're leading, you know, where, where other people are following. Um, and I think that's what Dean saw in his marketing plan. And now that he's a couple of years into it, you know, like they're, 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 they experiment on him, you know, in a lot of ways. Like, you know, if you go to some of his books, you're going to see moving covers, you know, um, in, in the ebook itself, it might have, you know, moving text or moving images, different things like that. But, you know, the fact that they're willing to, to take chances and try new things, I think, you know, that would be enough, I think, to get me over the, you know, through that door, just, you know, to be with somebody who's got some fresh thoughts. I think too, that, you know, there's just, it's just a big shift we're seeing in the publishing industry. Like you brought up a lot of the concerns about like not hitting the list, not having your book in bookstores, but like those Amazon imprints, I mean, they're just, they're running a different business model. Like they, like they, they don't care about that because they have the largest shop in the world, you know? And I think that, um, and, and I, it's Dean was smart enough to see that and to see like, okay, well, like, 
like these other things I'm used to happening because I've been doing this for so long aren't going to happen. But like if I can be, at, you know, hit the top of the Amazon charts and have their machine behind it, like I'm probably still going to do pretty well with with this book. And it goes back to what we were talking about last week, too, when I was talking about the Microsoft deal, like it's a content thing. You know, like they, they want people on their platform reading their books and ordering them. So, like, I doubt that Thomas and Mercer and those publishers, like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like, it doesn't make, they probably don't really care that much about having a lot of their books in Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure they would like it, but I, I think at the end of the day, they probably feel like they don't really need to. But it's cool to see that, like, they're able to here with this situation and all that. Yeah, and you know now that now that you know somebody like Dean is is a couple of years in, you know if if you go out there and you look at his his back catalog, like everything is still selling well. Yeah, you know it, whereas a traditional model like they focus one hundred percent on that latest title, you know they hit really big that first week and then it's gone. You know it just kind of fizzles away. Like Am, Amazon's got every you know you, you can go to a, a dozen different charts and you're going to see books that Dean put out through Amazon three four years ago still sitting up there in the top you know ten twenty or or so. Um, you know, it's, it's all about the long game with them, which, you know, in the end, I think for the author, you know, might just be better. You know, a lot of indie authors see it, you know, like ultimately when you start adding up those coins, you know, it's, it's that long game that really counts, not necessarily a big hit, you know, straight out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, Dean doesn't have to do these kinds of things anymore. <laughs> and he even it, said that. He yeah, said, yeah, I yeah. Mean, he said that at one point. I mean, I'm, I'm even talking about our podcast. Like, he doesn't have oh, to do yeah. interviews anymore. And uh, yeah. so I'm so grateful that he, he uh, you know, decided to come on and got JD off his back and quit bugging him about it because uh, we're just, I, I feel really fortunate that we were able to to hear him talk and, and share it with, with everyone listening because, uh, it really is a rare thing, and, and was and it was an incredible experience, and uh, really grateful to him for that. Yeah, a great guy, and I, I think you know to a certain extent, you you start to put these people up on on pedestals; they don't become real people anymore. Um, and I, I think when he when he does come out there and talk, you know, about these types of things, you know, and just show, you know, it just shows how open he is, and just shows that he's been there, you know, exactly the same place that, that the rest of us are. And you know, he was starting off; he struggled for fifteen years. You know, he 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 didn't he didn't give up. You know, that that's ultimately that was the key. He didn't give up. He kept you know putting out the best product that he could over and over and over again. And you know, if you keep doing that, it it will work. Awesome. So thanks again, Dean. Uh, who's up next week, JD? Next week, we've got Greg Hurwitz coming on. He's a New York Times bestseller of more than a, a dozen books. Um, he writes uh, something called the Orphan X series. And I don't know if you guys have checked this out yet, um, but it, it, it's honestly, it's one of my favorites. I, I kind of, I ran out of Jack Reacher books to read and, and ended up picking up one of these. And I just, I got hooked and ended up going through all of them, you know, and just like one quick, one quick jaunt. Um, the audiobooks in particular are really good because they're narrated by Scott Brick. He's one of one of my favorites. Um, but, but Hurwitz is fantastic. I can't wait to have him on. Um, so next week, Greg Kerwitz. Excellent. Looking forward to it. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.